Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is artist manager and president of the nonprofit Women in Music organization, Nicole Barcelona. But let's start with this. I was looking at the website for the Copyright Alliance, and there's a section all about the status of their activities for the last month, and something jumped out at me. It said at the end of October 2023, there were 631 total cases that had been filed with copyright claims. Of these claims, 249 are what they call smaller claims, and in 188 of all cases, the claimant is using legal counsel. Now, the Copyright Claims Board is not like a state or a federal court where you don't actually need an attorney, although it's a really good idea to have one. So out of all these claims, there are 284 cases about graphics and sculpture. There are 97 over literary works, 119 on picture and audiovisual works, 70 on sound recordings, 39 on musical works, which is publishing, and there are some cases that include claims for multiple works. Now, here's the thing that really jumped out at me. Of all the cases filed, 460 have been dismissed for the following reasons. There were 58 that were dismissed due to respondents opt out. So when it comes to copyright claims, what happens is someone will file a claim against you and then you actually have the ability to opt out and say, I'm not going to appear in front of the Copyright Claims Board. Take me to federal court instead. 231 were dismissed due to failure to amend noncompliant claims. And what that means is there's a problem in the claim. And the Copyright Board comes back and says, okay, you have to change this in order to make it a valid claim. And the people don't do it. Registration issues had 11 claims dismissed. So basically, there was something in the registration that made the claim invalid. 87 were dismissed because of failure to provide proof of service of process. What that means is, if you're filing a claim against somebody, a process server has to actually serve them with the process so they understand what's happening. And if they can't do that, then the claim gets dismissed. There were 42 that were dismissed because the claimant had withdrawn the claim. So basically they thought better of it after they get into the process. Six were dismissed for bad faith, meaning that the copyright board looked and said, oh, wait, there's something wrong here. You're falsifying something. We don't think this is right. Or you're misrepresenting something. And 25 were settled. So of these 631 total cases, only 47 are active and nine had final determinations. What does all this mean? The one thing that stands out here is that there are not as many copyright infringement cases as you might think. Everybody thinks there's a lot of these happening. And of course, it seems that way, especially on the high profile cases. But there aren't as many in music as you might think, and even fewer ever make it to court. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. 
can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Once again, there are some big changes in the executive suite of Guitar Center. This past week, they changed the chairman of the board, the CEO, and the CFO, chief financial officer. I thought I'd mention who these new executives are and their background, because something really jumps out here. Ken Hicks is the new chairman. He's currently the executive chairman of Academy Sports and Outdoor, and he served as the chairman, president, and CEO of Foot Locker, held leadership positions at JCPenney, Payless Shoe Source, Home Shopping Network, May Department Stores, and McKinsey & Company. He's on the board of directors of Avery Dennison and also Whole Food Markets. It really jumps out that there's no music or entertainment background there. Tim Martin comes back for his second stint as CFO, Chief Financial Officer, and his background includes Torrid, Land's End, Gap, Disney, Coldwater Creek, and Amgen. Again, there's no music or entertainment background. And Gabe Del Pardo is the new CEO. He comes from Lending Tree and Udacity, but I'll give him credit here. He issued a statement that said, Coming from a family of musicians, some of my fondest memories growing up were visiting guitar center stores with my father, where we obsessed over the incredible guitars and cutting-edge equipment. So at least he has some appreciation for the business that he's in. Guitar Center's growth has been a result of financial engineering. The company is now owned by three equity investors, Aries Private Equity Group, the Carlisle Group, and Brigade Capital Management. If you try to shop there recently, you know that everything revolves around money, and there's not a lot of focus on serving the customer. If you're not up to buying gear online, and many people are not, then I urge you to support your local mom-and-pop music store. They mean more to the musician now than ever before. My guest today is Nicole Barcelona, who's a director of Everyday Rebellion Entertainment Artist Management and the president of the nonprofit Women in Music organization. Nicole grew up around music as her father, Frank, was a pioneering agent later inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His clients included The Who, Led Zeppelin, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, Tom Petty and U2, among many others. Her mother, June, was a journalist who traveled from the UK at age 18 covered the Beatles' first U.S. tour, and later worked as a music publicist. Nicole started her career at Stephen Van Zandt's multimedia company called Renegade Nation, where a week-long temp job turned into the most formative years of her career. She eventually served as chief of staff and director of communications at Renegade Nation and road manager to Van Zandt on tours of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. During the interview, we spoke about how she observed her father's influence in the music business as she was growing up, how we're at a turning point for music promotion, the importance of meet and greets, the most sought-after person on a management team today, her role in women in music, and much more. I spoke with Nicole from her office in Boston. I want to go back to the beginning of you getting into the music business, and I, I know you have a storied background with your dad and everything. That doesn't always mean that you're going to follow in, you know, your famous parents' footsteps. So what happened with you? Well, um, I was certainly not planning on it. <laughs> um, 
Stephen Van Zandt jokes that I'm like the Alex P. Keaton of the family, that I was like the one who was like organized and more structured and um, even as a kid. And so I really wanted to go into communications and actually create this in political PR, which I'm so happy I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That would have been a whole other uh, conversation. But um, I really thought I wanted to do something like a little more, a little more nine to five, you know, like at a corporate office. And then I started interning in those scenarios and I realized that maybe not what I uh, really wanted to do. And I was graduating college and moved to New York the summer after I graduated. And I was going on all these interviews and having to like buy real work clothes and, you know, things that growing up just were not part of, (laughs) were not part of the scene uh, versus my in-laws who were like dentists and nurses and they, you know, had more uh, structured professions. And my parents, my dad, I don't think ever put on a, I don't think I ever saw him in a pair of pants that weren't jeans, you know, same (laughs) with my mom. She was very um, laid back. And um, Stephen Van Zandt's assistant at the time called me and said, Hey, I heard you graduated and you're interviewing. Would you maybe just come to do a temp job for a week with us? Because we have a festival happening on Randall's Island in New York. And Stephen has all of these international bands coming and we just need someone who understands kind of artist relations to come in and be that person to do credentials and just work with the bands a little bit. And I said, sure, I don't know what you're talking about with the festival. I didn't even know Stephen had a radio show at the time that keep all of these things happening and that I wasn't aware of. And I went in and I took this job for a week on this festival, which ended up being this crazy rotating stage that they had designed that broke like within the first set and there was a hurricane coming. So there was a guy with a Doppler in one of the trailers backstage and it was just absolute chaos. And it was the most fun I had ever had. And um, I absolutely loved it. And I, after that week, I was like, wow, this has been incredible. Is there anything, you know, happening at the company that I could jump in and get involved in, even just to intern this summer before I decide on full time? And um, his his production assistant at the time was like, yeah, we have a radio show. We have, we're starting an indie label. We're doing all these things. So why don't you just start being kind of a runner around the office um, and see how it goes? We always need this an extra set of hands. So I started literally just making coffee for people and running around doing random things. And I ended up getting experience in pretty much every facet of the business, which, you know, at the time I was 22, I didn't know what all of it meant, but I was like doing radio station acquisition. Stephen would be like, listen, we're not on in uh, Romania. We need a Romanian station. Why don't you, you know, look it up and see who, and I would like email radio stations in Romania. And we ended up get adding all these stations. It was like just a crazy thrown in the fire kind of a learning experience. Um, and it was the best because, you know, he had a really high bar for um, expectations of what what he expected from the, the folks at his company could do. And you just had to kind of rise to the occasion. So whatever it was, I ended up being tour manager to Steven out on the road with Springsteen and the E Street Band. So we were like running the company while we were out on the road and we would be up at, you know, seven in the morning to go to a local record store to do a signing with a local band he had in Sweden and then go to the show that night and then be back on a plane that night flying to the next market. So it was a lot of, um, a lot of different stuff all at once. And that made me realize I really wanted to, like I couldn't deny the fact that I just, um, had a natural inclination to, to work in this insane business. And um, I loved working with Steven and doing kind of the bigger picture strategy on what we could like launch a new band or where we could maybe look into the radio show doing different things. And so I, I love doing all of that stuff, but at his level, I was, we were saying no to a lot more than we were saying yes to just because he was so tapped for time and 
and um, bandwidth. And so I realized I really wanted to try um, artist management and kind of work one-on-one with artists, crafting that strategy from the beginning and kind of putting those building blocks together. And that's what I've seen my dad do a lot of growing up was like he was an agent, but back then he was an agent who also really straddled the line of almost into management guidance. You know, he really sat with the artists and and explained to them what he saw as uh, working and not working on the road and kind of crafting a long-term plan for touring um, and artist development in that sense. And I always loved that part of what I saw him doing. So that's where I started. And I, I, my father always said, don't go into music. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was, he was kind of starting to come down with Alzheimer's and uh, dementia by the time I was graduating. So he didn't really get, he got to see when I was working on Stephen's Festival. I don't think he saw the, necessarily the signs that I would end up doing this, um, but he always kind of warned against it. And then here we are. <laughs> Did you realize what a heavyweight he was when you were growing up? You know, I didn't. I don't think I realized, you know, we would have like Bono over for dinner and I didn't know. He was just one of my parents' work friends. You know, it's like it didn't, I would see them on stage, but I don't think I connected that that was uh, different from, you know, someone taking their kid into another workplace. So um, I don't think I did. Although there was a sense, I think, of um, a great amount of respect and admiration that people around him had for him that I definitely saw and noticed. Um, And I think that, kind of tipped me off that what he was doing was probably pretty cool and that he himself did it in a way that was really admirable. I think that was something that always stuck with me. Were you a music lover? I was. I was. Um, I I remember like really being into grunge, like Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and that he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I understand what's happening here. And so I grew up like on, you know, Springsteen and U2 and Tom Petty and all the bands that he booked, Eurythmics and Annie Lennox. Um, and then started kind of, I think, finding my own music as you do when you're like a preteen um, and have always just been a real music lover. But I think that we all kind of gravitate to the stuff that's a little bit um, nostalgic for us, right, that we grew up on. So yeah. a lot of that early stuff is still still some of my favorite. <laughs> well, how did that translate into your management career? I mean, I think really, um, just like I said, seeing how he was with the artists, um, Tom Petty's manager told this great story. Uh, he emailed this story to me when my dad passed away of him coming into the office one day and saying something about like coming in to talk about tour routing and trying to reroute a tour or something. Um, cause he and Tom wanted to do something. And my dad like sat him, he was always sitting on the floor. He sat down on the floor with him and, um, he like took out this huge map and he was explaining like what, why it made sense that they were routing the way they were routing, you know? Um, and Barbara Skydell, who was the second in command at his company at the time, walked by and said, what are you guys doing in here? Uh, and my dad was like, oh, you know, he's teaching me how to route a tour. Uh, uh. They were just, it was like this really, he was like an educator as much as he was an agent. And so um, just seeing that and that kind of dynamic of how he worked with bands just um, I think has really guided how I try to work with artists in that I, I want to help like have their vision be communicated and then figure out how we make that vision happen. I think that it's so easy these days, especially with new media and technology to get really distracted by the 20 million things you're supposed to be doing. But um, to me, it's really at the end of the day about what the artist wants and how we can kind of get there doing things that make them comfortable and making sure that they're feeling good about it and you know 
making sure mental health is top of mind and that we're making decisions that will really create a long lasting career. So not jumping after every shiny object, but trying to think about, okay, what's actually going to sustain the long-term career you want to have into the future is I think so important. It's certainly be You've certainly seen the old school music business and it's different today. And it's especially different when it comes to promotion because traditional media doesn't mean as much as it did. How does that influence how you go about what you're doing with your artists? I mean, I think it's a tough, I think it's a tough time right now. You know, I think that um, streaming is, I think 10 years ago, I was like literally on a panel saying how great streaming was because you open yourself up to all these new audiences that you might not have reached otherwise with traditional gatekeepers like radio and stuff, you know, but, but now <laughs> it's so hard because not only are you not getting paid as you would had someone downloaded that song that you might be reaching more folks, but they're, that it's just so saturated. Like there are just so many incredible artists that it's really hard to kind of reach, I think a certain level of promotion. And, and I was talking to someone the other day who was in radio promotion and they were even saying like they just don't see a path forward. And so it's just really interesting that we're at this, I think, real turning point for things that used to be used to work and still to some degree are necessary in a campaign. You know, you still want to be on the radio charts, um, but it also costs a lot of money when you're an emerging artist to work on a radio campaign like that. Um, I know that, you know, labels are cutting down on certain like traditional forms of media a lot on their teams. And I think it's tough. I think really the important thing now is focusing in on like what is making money and for different artists that'll be different things and and following that um whether it's a really cool merchandise line certainly touring has you know thank goodness we came through the pandemic and we're back to touring because that really has been sustaining artists um in ways that are meaningful and like i have one artist who he can you know do a venue tour but then also do these house concerts because he has this really tuned in audience base who like loves you know, kind of the candlelit home concert vibe. And so that's a great way to book shows in between major markets that really kind of pays the travel money and, and ends up booing, booing a tour in a way that uh, is really meaningful. So I think it's just dependent on the artist finding things you can do to to maximize whatever those fans want. Um, another artist, Pratik, who, Pratik Kuhad, who I have, like the, you know, meet and greets will be really big. So we try to do that on a tour here to make sure that we have time for for meet and greets and some kind of an added on benefit for fans um, to be in person. And so just try to, I think, find those little niche things that the audiences are looking for depending on the artist and, and chase that as much as you can. One of the things I always ask artist managers when I have them on a program is about social media and social media with their artists, because as you well know, some artists just are great at it and, and have a natural ability and other artists would rather stay away. And then that falls on to you. So do you have to educate them? Do you do a lot of that for them? You know, I'm really lucky in that I have one artist, Pratik, who's incredible on socials. He just is a really artistic, visual person. And so he used to just post uh, different photos from wherever he was in his day. And it was often like windows or scenes, just really beautiful visuals. And his fans loved that. Like, I personally love that. And I also knew where he was on any given day because I could look on Instagram and see. He's kind of rolled back a little bit from that. And I think that does tend to happen um, over time. We kind of change our <laughs> what we're really tuned into or, or not into on socials. Um, there isn't a single artist manager who I've talked to recently who isn't looking for new people to bring on 
their digital teams. Like, I think that's the most sought after hiring role is like, who can we find who's really great at digital media, who can work with us and the artists to come up with content that feels really authentic and is from the artist's point of view, but that someone else can help implement on a consistent basis. Because, you know, whether you're on tour or you're in a studio recording, like they're just everything ebbs and flows. And I think when artists start to see numbers of engagement waning, that makes them feel like they're maybe not, they're falling behind in some way. Um, but really, I think it's just like a natural cadence that comes and goes when you have different campaigns and, you know, some fans um, may be more apt to follow on one platform or another. Um, but I think that certainly it's something that, you know, our label teams are constantly giving us best practices, which is really helpful. But I think it, it's dependent on the artist um, and any digital team you're able to, to have on what actually gets executed. Because, again, it's so much just like an, another job for an artist. Yeah. And not that they want it, you know, it's not something you signed up for necessarily. So I think it's really hard. Um, so I think certainly if there are folks in the digital media space who are really clued into what's going on and what audiences like and how to work with artists in that in that way, that's like the number one job that everyone is looking to, to fill on the artist management side. So, <laughs> well, speaking of artist management and you mentioned labels before, managers are so much more necessary not so much from the standpoint that you do what you always did, but now you're taking so much of what a label did in terms of promotion and marketing and everything. And in many cases, even doing releases yourself. So do you see that evolving more in, in the future or are we going back to, you know, maybe relying on labels more? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think it would be nice uh, to rely on the labels for it. I think that's like part of the reason you sign with a label is the expectation that they will take on so much of that. I think at the end of the day, labels have like, you know, varied rosters often. And so they might have, let's say a digital person who's really keyed into certain audiences or certain trends um, and might not fill exactly what needs we're looking for with an artist. So I think that it has become more often than not, the manager's job to fill those gaps, um, whether you're able to kind of outsource it or do it yourself. Um, I think that it's a harder sell for artists now to sign to a label with long backend contract stuff. Like if they're going to own your catalog, I think artists these days are a lot more hesitant. Um, and it's harder as a manager to kind of sell the long-term benefits of signing to a label um, than it was 10 years ago. You know, and I think that... Um, the labels do have a, a good amount of work to to do to make sure that they're catching up and making sure they are filling those gaps but it's again it's really hard to figure out right now <laughs> what is actually going to make money you know yeah. if you don't have a, a 360 deal as a label i'm not sure where you're really making it it's just a tough it's a tough market um we do i do have one artist on an indie label and they're um really hands-on so that's been really refreshing it's like a lot of the stuff that i can't do our teams there are are really able to fill in gaps. Um, and, you know, I think there are just still so many pros and cons with indie versus major versus independent. So it really depends on what the artist likes. I have three different art, or I two, two now artists with very different goals. And so you just have to hopefully find the right partner if you're going to find one. But if not, yep, it falls to false sure. And, you know, the good thing is they have like artist relations teams a lot at independent distributors. So they are teams at the distribution companies working much like a label would anyway. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, I think if you're a manager who is is interested in 
working independently with, with the distribution companies and stuff, as long as you bring the right team, it's not that dissimilar, I think, to a label team. So there are a lot of benefits. What is the one thing that you wish that people understood about what you do? Um, I would say that like there is no right answer and you're not supposed to know the answers. I think I came into this in artist management thinking like, oh my gosh, an artist manager is supposed to like, we have to know so much across the vast industry that we work in. Like we have to know about publishing and licensing and sync and PROs and the DSPs and streaming and marketing and radio and all of the all, PR, all of the things. Um, and there are so many, there's such like a breadth of stuff that goes on in an artist's career that um, I just wish I had known I was not supposed to know the answer to all of those things. You know, you're like spend so much time trying to do things in a way that's perfect, but there is no perfect in this business. And um, I say that often to, to folks when I talk to people kind of just starting out. It's like, don't just ask a lot of questions and be open to learning because we're, everybody's learning every single day, especially now with new media. Yeah. It's like, People who are just coming into the business, I will lean on. You know, people who I mentor are also mentoring me because there's so much we can all learn from each other every day. So there's just no right answer. And it's a lot of uh, just trial and error. And that's just what it is <laughs> in, in a market that changes so rapidly all the time. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about women in music. First of all, let me tell you that every woman in music that I've ever, and I'm mostly on the studio side, that I've ever encountered had to work at a higher level than any man just to stay equal. And I always admired that because what was expected was way beyond, and the hassle factor was way beyond what any man would ever go through. Amen to that. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I came, I came up like watching my parents and their peers. And I mentioned before, Barbara Skydell was one of my first female mentors in the business. She was second in command at my dad's company. My father, actually, the three people who he was the president of the company and then the VP and then the two other highest in command were all women. And so he obviously knew who would get the work done because he knew exactly who to surround himself with. And Barbara was um, just a brilliant human being and a brilliant agent um, and such an amazing advisor. It was amazing to see her too with artists and her kind of artist relations capacity. Um, and so I had an amazing role model in Barbara, knowing that like her and my dad were on equal footing. And that was one of my first examples of like a really successful industry executive, which was really powerful. I think that the her and a couple of other women who I saw growing up, they didn't have kids, they didn't have families. I'm not sure if that was by choice or just because the business was not, you know, accepting of a woman who would also have something else happening because it did, you know, the ex expectations and the output needed to be so much greater to get into those, into those positions. But, um, I started out at Steven's company. I left to go out on my own and I was like, wow, I need resources. And I, I know like, you know, super high powered attorneys and accounts and these people, but I don't, they're all men. And I don't feel comfortable going to those guys saying like, Hey, can you, tell me what a tour writer is. You know, I needed like really basic knowledge to fill in gaps of what I hadn't done um, just at that like indie level. And so I, I Googled women in music and I found the organization and I went to a couple of events and I realized there was like this whole network of peers and mentors that I could lean on and felt really comfortable asking questions to. 
And I emailed our Google group one day after became a member. And I said, hey, did anyone have entertainment law experience? I have this contract on my desk for a client and I have literally no idea what I'm doing here. And um, I got this a slew of emails back from women who said, yes, I'm an attorney at this firm or, hey, I have my own firm. I just started out, yada, yada. And I found um, a peer who had just started her own firm and she was a brilliant attorney. And um, she walked me through things in a way that like I felt really comfortable and supported. And she became my attorney and one of my dearest friends to this day. And that's how I kind of built up a network of peers where I felt like, okay, these people, I might not have expertise in publishing, but this person does. And I can kind of lean on them as I would a colleague, but in kind of a freelance marketplace, this is a way to kind of build that peer group of colleagues that I can really go to um, when I need them. And um, that's what WIM really does. I think, you know, you're, we're an educational nonprofit. We're a 501c3. So providing educational career development um, tools and resources is the crux of what we do. Um, so if you, you know, are a member, you'll see virtual and in-person events about anything from how to release an independent record to, um, you know, being a mother in music. So we kind of fill, fill all of the educational and, and also like lifestyle gaps that we can. Um, and then I went to South by Southwest in 2014 and I saw a panel about moms in music and they were all artist managers speaking. And I had not ever before seen a group of women who were all parents and artist managers and executives talking about it. It was like when I came up in the business, you did not talk about your personal life. Because if you talked about your personal life, that meant you had something that distracted you from pouring 100% of your soul into your job. And as a woman, that was just not acceptable. And so I saw this panel of women and I was like, oh my gosh, this is possible. And I had stepped out of the business at that point. I was taking a year or two off to just be like, what, how am I going to do this? I can't be on tour, you know, nine months of the year um, if I want to have a life outside of that. So that really changed it for me. And that's why I think when the storytelling piece is so important for me, aside from the educational piece, it's like to have representation and have people who look like you and have the same goals you have talking about the fact that they're doing it. It gives you a path to know that it's possible for you um, and to know what hurdles there are and all of the other stuff that you can kind of prepare yourself for. So um, that for me has been like women in music has been a lifeline, not only to give me that support and those resources, but to build my career. Like I have found, I hire everyone I work with. <laughs> I first go to Women in Music to see who's available. Um, you know, whether it's an amazing organization like Diversify with Stage, um, Noelle Skaggs, who's in Fits in the Tantrums, started that organization. That's like a whole group. You can get a whole list of folks who are diverse, identifying folks in many different categories to hire for touring. So like, the old kind of boys club of word of mouth for tour management or photographers or whatever we used to used to operate that way. Now you can literally see, okay, I need, I'm looking for someone who I have an LGBTQ queer community band. I would like to find someone who is representing that community on tour to make sure the band feels like they have a place that's safe and secure and, you know, feels like a place of belonging for them on the road. Um, so organizations like WIM, Diversify the Stage, she is the music who works really on the kind of producer and, and creative side and has a whole database of folks who are um, searchable that you can find. It's, I think, really exciting to know now that um, you don't really have an excuse not to recruit more diverse folks into the business anymore. And 
women's, you know, hopefully leading the charge to diversify that funnel. We have a mentorship program. We have an executive internship program to get folks hired in at the at the beginning and then kind of help them up the ladder. So um, I think it's a really exciting time. I think the business is finally at a place where everyone realizes that not only is it important to have diverse teams who represent the artists we work with, but um, it benefits the bottom line. Like the statistics show that businesses do better when they have more diverse leadership. So hopefully just a first step in the right direction. Well, best person for the job, regardless. Uh, exactly. It's the way I, exactly. I've always felt. What is the percentage of women in music? I remember what it used to be. What is it now? It's such a good question. And there aren't statistics. Uh, there are like a lot of stats on the producer and engineer side of things. And they're pretty dire. The Annenberg study every year puts out numbers. And it's pretty, um, it's pretty depressing. Although I will say, I think that also has to do with a lot with, you know, more organizations like we are moving the needle. Emily Lazar's organization, things like that, that really encourage folks to get into those um, those practices. So like there are all kinds of programs, um, not only in kind of the university space, but also grant programs to um, to help kind of train more people on the technical side. Because that's something like I have no technical knowledge <laughs> behind the scenes, um, but would have loved, you know, to have that be a part of my education in college. We didn't have music business programs when I was in school, but now there are so many. And so I think that really helps to train train folks when they're just starting out um, in lots of different areas. And I think that'll definitely make a difference in the next 10 years in those numbers. But overall in the business, there aren't stats on how many female identifying folks are working in music. Um, so that's something that a few of us in the kind of an equity space are, are working to try to gather that information. Um, it's self-reporting to some degree since there are so many freelancers. But I think that there are a ton of women working in the music industry, just speaking anecdotally. Like most of my team's are all women and outside of women in music, just my, my label teams. It's really a matter of like the, the decision-making leadership positions that are still male dominated. And so I think we'll just see that change um, since we've had so many more folks in the business over the last 10 years at different levels, but there is still that broken rung, they call it in the middle where like, if you are going to have a family physically, that still ends up most of the time falling to women um, unless you have an alternative plan. And so, you know, that really, it really is a matter of putting systems in place at companies. And as a freelancer myself, like I didn't have a maternity leave. <laughs> I'm an artist and I'm a manager and there's no such thing as maternity leave. So um, I think of coming up with systems to support the whole family. So like, also we talk about a lot about how it's not, it shouldn't just be a maternity leave conversation. It needs to be a family leave so that partners are also taking an equal share so that we're empowering dads or whoever the partner is. Um, and also so that the onus to take that time off of work isn't only on a woman if she doesn't choose to do it so yeah lots of structural changes to work on but i think um at least we're having these conversations now whereas you know 15 20 years ago no one was even broaching the subject so it's it's, it's like an empowering time uh before we end here i read somewhere about you were doing a book about your dad mm. i and um, we are slowly but surely i actually have to it's a good reminder i'm supposed to send some files um to a writer who we have been talking to, we reached out to me in 2012, shortly after my dad passed away. And uh, it has taken us like almost this long to, for me to just like even get all of our materials together. There are these storage spaces in New Jersey, apparently with tons of old, old <laughs> archive material that is not the stuff that's gone to the Rockwell Hall of Fame, but um, other stuff. So we have a lot to get through, but yeah, I think that um, we have to finally get it done. My mom, bless her, is, st is still 
just sharp as ever at 85. And so um, she is like the holder of all the stories. And uh, we do have some really cool recordings of other folks and promoters and stuff. Uh, thanks to Stephen Van Zandt, we did this whole session where he had an interviewer shadow Frank uh, for I think it was two years or something. It was a lot of time. And he was a real talker. So there's a lot of material. But um, yeah, that would be really great. We, uh, we're getting close. We definitely have to wrap it up and get it done. It's uh, just some incredible, incredible old time stories when it was like the Wild West. <laughs> Boy, I can't wait to read that. I'm a connoisseur of rock and roll history books. So, uh, and whenever I go away, especially if I have a long plane ride, that's what I do. And this is one book that would definitely be in my reading list. Anyway, last question, Nicole. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? Really good question. I would say like two things that I try to remind myself of often. One is um, like, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to get done. <laughs> I think that is something that uh, a lot of my colleagues and I, as women also, I think we're like conditioned to try to do everything perfectly. And like you said, the standards being so high um, to get to the same place, but like really important to just get things done and get the job done, even uh, if in your head, it's not hundred um, percent. And the other thing I would say is like trust your intuition. I think in this business, maybe more than anywhere, um, a red flag, whether it's with an artist or a partner or a colleague, whatever it is, is a red flag. And so I would like just say really lean on expertise that you know you have and trust your gut because more often than not, think trying to do something another way that you think you're supposed to do it based on some trend or some other thing that's happening is inevitably not going to lead you to the result you're looking for. I think that um, we, we too often ignore our intuition. And uh, this is a business of relationship and like vibes. And I think that stuff really does dictate a lot. You can find out more about Nicole at NicoleBarcelona.com. That's Nicole, N-I-C-H-O-L-E, Barcelona, B-A-R-S-A-L-O-N-A, Nicole Barcelona, all one word, dot com. And you can find out about Women in Music at womeninmusic, all one word, dot org. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>